Thank you for listening to this podcast from Living Hope Church in Skokie, Illinois, featuring the preaching of Pastor Daniel Mann. For more information about our church, please visit us online at www.livinghopechicago.com. We trust that today's message will encourage you in your relationship with God. We've been in a series called Christianity 101, where we've been going through the most basic but essential beliefs that Christians have. This is about our sixth or seventh message so far in this series. We talked about the first message was the foundation for every Christian, which is the Bible, God's Word. All that as Christians that we believe, we find an anchor in God's Word. And everyone has an anchor for their belief system. Some people, it's their professors at a university. Other people, it's their smart uncle. Uh, Other people, it's the smartest person that they know. And then some people choose to trust and believe the Bible for the foundation for their life. Christians accept and believe and trust the Bible gives answers to the most serious and pressing questions of life. We spent three weeks talking about who God is. And according to the Bible, God is one God but exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we spent three different messages looking at the different persons within the Godhead, talking about God the Father. We talked about the Holy Spirit and we talked about Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what Christians believe about that, I would encourage you to go to our website, www.livinghopechicago.com. You can listen to those messages to find out what it is uh, that God's Word says about each of the persons within the Godhead. Last Sunday, we talked about cosmology and the scriptural account for creation found in the book of Genesis, that God created the heaven and the earth, and that all that does exist, does exist by the creation of God. But today we're going to talk about anthropology, which is the study of mankind. We're going to talk about humanity. What does it mean to be a person? How did humanity come into existence? Is there meaning and purpose in life? What differentiates us from all the other creatures that are in existence. And so we're going to talk about humanity. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we will look at this together. Genesis chapter 2. The video that we watched a second ago gave us a little bit of an image of what must have happened when Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel against God. And it is hard for you and I to even fathom the drastic changes that took place from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, you find the brightest day in humanity's history. And in Genesis chapter 3, you find the darkest day in humanity's history. Two extremes are found in these verses of Scripture. And I'm convinced about this. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 2... In Genesis chapter 3, you will never truly know who you are. Because this is the history of who we are. And if you don't know the history of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, you won't know very much about who you are. In fact, I meet a lot of people who are very confused today. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that they're confused is because they simply don't know and understand Genesis 2. And Genesis 3. The answers to the questions, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's wrong with me? And how can I be made right again? 
and where am I going when all this is done? All of those answers, I believe, can be found in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. So look with me. We have a number of verses to read, so I will try to pick and choose the best ones for us to look at today. But Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse 8 says that God planted a garden that he called Eden. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it. And the Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt die. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. And that's what God did. Look at verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs... And closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." Now we get to chapter 3. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. God has created Adam. God has created Eve. God had put them together. And now we see that there is a change that takes place. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, tree, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now notice the change in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, And he, that is God, said, Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? 
And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave of me the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And then God goes in verse 14 and on down several more verses and he talks about the different consequences for the sin that Eve would face, that Adam would face, that the serpent that Satan used in order to speak these lies to Eve. Notice what it says here though in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Edom cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. We just read a mouthful, I realize. But I'm going to try with God's help to unpack for you today what the Bible teaches about humanity, what these two chapters mean for you and I. And I think what you'll find is that this makes a lot of sense in in the shape of the lives around us that we see and in the world around us. Will you pray with me as we jump in and look at two things that the Bible teaches us about humanity? Father, I realize I can't do this in my own power. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me today. Lord, I use your precious word today. Holy Spirit, speak to every heart today. Those that know you as Savior, Lord, I pray you'd speak to them today about these truths and even deepen their faith. For those that have come this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, maybe we have some who are skeptical today of you, Lord. Maybe they're skeptical of your word. Maybe there's some who are on the verge and they're not quite sure what all this means and if it really all makes sense. Lord, I can't convince them, but you can. And I pray that you would do that today, that you would guide us in truth and that you would speak to our hearts and that you would teach us today these wonderful truths. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does God's Word teach about humanity? Let me give you two brief thoughts today about what God's Word teaches concerning anthropology. Number one, I want you to notice what we call the uniqueness of humanity. The uniqueness of humanity that God created mankind in His image. That's what Scripture tells us very clearly, that God created Adam and Eve in His image. And the the amazing thing about this is that it's only humanity that are called created in the image of God. As far as we know, we're not, certain, we're not for certain told of the angels, but we know for certain that God has said that human beings are His special creation that are made in His image. We are created in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1.27 says. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. Let me ask you this. If someone were to walk up to you on the side of the street and ask you, what does it mean to be a human? What would you say to them? If someone were to say to you, what's it mean to be a person? What's it mean to be a human being? What would your answer be to them? Well, the Bible tells us a few things of what it means to be a human, and preeminently what it means to be a human is it means that we are created in the image of God. Now, now what does that mean? 
Well, as one person put it, and I like how he said this, that God, when it means that we're created in the image of God, it means that God has placed within us a shadow of himself, a representation of his presence in you and I as we live in this world. That God has put something of himself in you and in me that he has not put in other creatures in the world today and in other things that he has created. Man is made in the likeness of God. How is that? Personality of mind and will and emotions. How else is man created in the image of God? Well, according to Scripture, we're created eternal, that we're going to live forever, that man is a living soul that will live forever. And when I say man, I'm using that generically as in mankind or humanity today, that we are made eternal. We're also made moral beings. I'll say more about that later. But when we're created in the image of God, you have to include morality into that as well. That we are created moral beings. Humanity is the crown treasure of all that God has created. And as image bearers of God, we are created with a personal relationship with God. That he created us for that purpose. To have personal relationship with him. As other beings were not created with that. That we are created not only to have a personal relationship, but to be stewards And to exercise a measure of dominion over creation that God has put in Adam and Eve. He gave them the responsibility of caring for creation, even naming much of what God created. A little boy was talking to his mom one day and he was very confused. He says, Mom, where do people come from? I don't know. He says, you tell me that God created us and that we're made in his image. And dad says we come from monkeys. And the mom says, well, son, all I can do is tell you about my side of the family. I can't tell you about dad's side of the family. He he came from monkeys, but you and I came from the image of God. I heard about another little boy that was having a terrible pain in his side. And he came in and said, mom, my side hurts so bad. She said, honey, what's wrong? He said, I don't know. I don't know, but it hurts so bad. He said, I'm really nervous. She said, I'm sure it's fine. You probably just ate something. You'll feel better later. He said, no, I don't think so. She said, why do you think that? He said, well, I was in Sunday school last week. And he talked about Adam and Eve. And I think I'm having a wife, Mom. It hurts so bad. I'm having a wife. Those are funny stories, I'm sure. But but when God says, can I ask you something? Who pays you a better compliment? The evolutionist who tells you that you came from apes? Or God who tells you that he made you in his image? Who pays you a better compliment? God or the evolutionist who would say that you came from an ape or God who says you came from me. And not only what's more attractive, because everything's not about attractiveness. Things about, there's some things that aren't attractive, but they're true. I'm not necessarily concerned about what's attractive. I'm concerned about what's true. Can I ask you a few other questions? How can there possibly be equal rights if evolution is true? There's no way with Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection, there's no such thing as equal rights. Within that, that's the, that's the opposite of natural selection. In what way are we created equal if natural selection's true? Michael Jordan and I were not created equal. He can slam dunk, he can run fast, he can make 50 points at Madison Square Garden. I'm not gifted in that way. We were not created equal. My children and a rich man's children are not created equal, right? They're created in a family uh, that doesn't have a ton of money, and the rich person's family is. Born into a family with tons of money. I mean, how, in what ways are we, if we're not created in the image of God and valuable because we are all in his likeness, 
How and in what way are we created equal? How can there be such thing as evil if there is no God? Where do moral standards, it just becomes your word versus my word. There can be no evil if God does not exist. These questions and many more only make sense if we are made in the image of God. And that's what our founding fathers of this nation understood, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable or Rights that you cannot violate with unalienable rights. That is what it means to be created in the image of God. The truth is from God's word, you didn't come from an animal. That you are the special handiwork of God. That God put something of himself in you and no one has ever paid you a better compliment than that. When God says, I've made you in my image. Your rights don't come from the government, they come from God. Your value is not based upon how smart, healthy, or gifted you are. Your value comes from God. Your life's worth is not based upon your net worth. Your life's worth is based upon the fact that you're made and precious in the image of God. Rich or poor, healthy or sick, able-bodied or disabled, you are precious to God. That's what Genesis chapter 2 tells us. I don't care if you were voted most likely to succeed in school or if they wouldn't even let you lead in silent prayer. Some of you will get that later. If they wouldn't let you lead in silent prayer. It doesn't matter your giftedness, your health and sickness and all those things. That does not equate value in your life. What gives you and I worth and preciousness and value is that we're created in the image of God, that we are image bearers of God. That's what makes mankind unique. That's why we can look at someone who's in a wheelchair or with cerebral palsy and say, this person is precious and is created unique and in the image of God and deserves to be loved and cared for and nurtured. That's why we could hold precious babies this morning and say, each of these children, they'll have different gifts. They'll have different unique callings. They'll have different skills but they're equally precious in the sight of God. No matter their race, color, health, strength, able-bodied or disabled, and the list can go on and on. Mankind is unique. But secondly and finally, not only is mankind unique, but mankind has fallen. The uniqueness of humanity, but then let's talk about the fall of humanity. I realize that in one message and in two points, I could not tell you everything there is to know from God's word about humanity, but I'm going to try to hit the main points today. What does it mean when we say mankind has fallen? What we mean is that mankind, you and I, are sinners. And that because of sin, we are now separated from God. Distant from Him, needing to be brought back to Him. You see, in Genesis 2, God created a beautiful garden. He planted Adam and Eve and put them in that garden. And He called that garden Eden. He gave Adam and Eve responsibility for caring for the garden. And Adam and Eve had one, God gave Adam and Eve one command. And that command was that they were not to eat of the tree that he named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice that he used the phrase, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people have trouble with that. And they say, why did God even have to make a a tree that they couldn't eat from? Why, Why even the command? Why even the rule? Well, here's the reason for this. And I think you'll like this reasoning behind it. But without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's no choice. And if you don't have choice, 
you don't have personality. If you don't have a will, you don't have choice, you don't have personality. In other words, that's what makes you and I human beings, is that God created us with a measure of freedom. When He created this tree, He's saying, I am giving to you, by my own sovereign will, I'm giving to you the freedom to choose to obey me or disobey me. And there you have what every human heart cries out for, and that's freedom of choice. They could choose to obey and love God as God desired, or they could choose to rebel and disobey and sin against God, which they did choose. They had the perfect marriage. They had perfect unity, perfect intimacy, perfect innocence, perfect lives in this garden that God had created them in. But when it comes to Genesis 3, everything changes. Satan tempts Eve. She doubts God. And in an act of rebellion, Adam and Eve both, you say, who is wrong? Both. Both were to blame. Both Adam and Eve made a choice to disobey God and take of the forbidden fruit. Now, in that moment, and the Bible doesn't say it was an apple, but in that moment when they took of whatever fruit it was and they took of that fruit and looked at it and saw that it was something that looked delicious and tasty, and then they were wondering if Satan was right when he says, if I take this, I'm going to be like God and I'm going to know good and evil. And the moment they take that bite, you and I can't fathom the drastic changes that take place. Because God said, in the moment that you take it, you will surely what? Die. And at that moment, they did die. Not physical death, although they began to physically die. But they spiritually at that moment died. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, at that moment, they went from innocent to guilty. They went from in perfect union with God to being separated from God. That's what it means to be dead spiritually, to be separated from God. They went from being blessed by God to now being cursed by God. And that's exactly what Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 through 21 tell us. That what happens there is when Adam and Eve sinned, that all of humanity were plunged into this fallen condition. That Adam as the first man and all of humanity being the seed of Adam, you and I were all made guilty through this sin. And you and I are now a part of fallen humanity. In Adam, all of humanity sinned. Every human being being the seed of Adam and his guilt is the guilt of every soul. Therefore, every person is under the curse and condemnation of sin. Every human being being fallen, guilty, and separated from God. You say, what do you mean? I don't really get all this. Let me see if I can illustrate it. In my backyard, I have two trees. We have an apple tree and a cherry tree. Our apple tree is dead. It was dead before we moved in. And we've lived there almost three years. And it produces a few apples, but every year I've noticed it produces less apples. And all the apples are even more corrupted with each passing year. Each passing year. More and more, those fewer and fewer apples. But those that come from the tree are corrupted. Then we have this cherry tree that just with abundance produces cherries. And my wife made us a delicious cherry pie last year from that cherry tree. And we, we made several of them. I don't know who she gave. She gave them to a few people from the church. And, and they were just great. They're two opposite trees. One that's producing death 
another that's producing life. You know, the Bible says that Adam, created in Genesis 1 and 2, is called the first Adam. Jesus Christ is called the last Adam. And that you and I have come from Adam. And so we've come from a cursed tree. We've come from a dead tree, so to speak. And so we have been infected with sin. It's a part of our very nature to sin. But through repentance of our sin, and by acknowledging our sin, and believing on Christ, we can come in union with Christ, and now be a part of a living tree, an uncorrupted tree. That is Jesus. When we're in union with Him, we're a part of a pure Now, some people have problem with the idea of sin, and they're not convinced that mankind is sinful and corrupt by nature. Can I ask you a question? Why is it, though, that when you and I, every time we watch the news or read the Chicago Tribune or some other paper in a city, why is it that we see multitudes of murders going on, all types of armed robberies and assaults and domestic violence? And by the way, they happen in every neighborhood. They happen all over the Chicago area. I mean, we live here in the North Shore, and you can read about places up north where siblings, killing siblings. I read recently about a 13-year-old girl who murdered her small sister while her mom was away at work. I believe they lived, um, I can't remember the suburb, it's 30 miles, 20 to 30 miles north of here in a very affluent suburb. It happens all the time. It doesn't just happen in places far, far away from us. Why do we have to lock our doors at night? Well, someone said, well, that's just the really bad people. Can I ask you this? Why does a husband have an affair against his wife or vice versa and break not only his or her marriage vow, but also break the heart of his spouse and his children? You say, well, that, that is, in a sense, we're showing the sin nature of mankind when all we care about is ourselves all we care about is our happiness and every day every week that goes by hearts are broken when these types of things happen why is it that we lie and cheat and steal and lust and hate and curse and neglect and gossip and slander Someone once said that sin is the one thing that we try to deny, but our actions keep proving that sin is real. Because it's that disease that we just can't get away from. Because it's in us. You see, the Bible says you and I are sinners by nature. Meaning that it's our default setting to sin. I'm going to ask you this. How many of you are parents? You're a parent. Can I ask you parents a question? I have two children. I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old. How many of you had to teach your children to talk back to you? You had to say, okay, son, daughter, this is how you talk back to me. (laughs) How many of you had to say, okay, we're going to have a lesson today about how to disobey. I'm going to tell you not to touch the stove, and then you go ahead and touch it, okay? Let's practice. This is called disobeying, all right? How many of you had to do that? I remember when my daughter was one years old, she just wasn't even able to walk yet. We had these little uh, uh, plug-ins on the side of the wall where she could reach. She'd crawl over to them. Her fingers were just about the size of that light socket. She's looking at that. She's looking. She's like, this could work together, I think, right? Well, we would tell her, Carly, no, Carly, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And then we kind of tap her hand a little bit to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
And she'd crawl over there. I remember the day it happened. I've told this before. Some of you have heard this, but I remember the day it happened. She would crawl over, and we said, no, 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 Carly, no, no, no. And then she'd look at it, and this is what she did. She'd look at it, and she'd look at me. She'd look at it. She'd look at me. What am I going to do here? I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I want to do this. We didn't have a lesson one day to say, Carly, 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 this is how you disobey. And you may say, what a mean parent. You don't want your kid to put her finger in there. Yeah, because I don't want her to get electrocuted, right? Neither do you. Am I doing that for her good or for her harm? For her good. The Bible says that God has made us in his image. But our default setting, no one has to teach us to lie, to steal, to be selfish, to curse, to hate. We learn that inwardly because our default setting. We have to teach I had to be taught. You have to be taught to do right. Why is that the case? Because you see, the problem is not primarily what we do. Primarily the problem is who we are. Let me ask you this question. Maybe this is a better way of putting it. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Are we sinners because we sin... Or do we sin because we're sinners? The Bible says the latter is the answer. That we sin because we're sinners. I can get mad all day long at the apples in my yard that are corrupt, but it's not the apple's fault, is it? The tree. It's the tree that's corrupting the apples. So why is it that I sin? Why is it? If the problem is not just what I do, the problem is who I am. It's in my nature. And if the answer is going to be solved, it has to be solved in my nature, not just in my actions. Someone put it this way. Suppose that someone has an awful problem with spider webs. You go home and you see there's spider webs all over the corners of your house and all over different places. Well, you've got two options. You can... Knock the cobwebs down and the spider webs down. And then you go back the next day and there it is again. We can knock the cobwebs down and knock the cobwebs down. Or the second option is find the spider. Get to the very, right? Get to the very root of the problem. You know what happens though with those that leave God and His Word out of the equation? All we're doing is wiping down cobwebs. And so we have the same reoccurring problems, so to speak. But yet what God says we need is to remedy the answer. As we come to a close, we're almost finished. You and I are not only sinners by nature, but I, I am a sinner by choice. I'm a sinner by choice. Some people could get mad at the idea to say, oh, but why is it that I'm guilty because Adam's guilty? How is it fair? Well, the reality is, as friend, you and I make the same choice every day to rebel against God's ways. And I mean, who among us could say, I am sinless? I certainly could not say that ever because I am not sinless. And no one among us could say that I'm sinless. Another thing we must understand, though, in order to really understand sin and humanity and our condition, is that when a person sins, it's not a harmless, impersonal mistake that we make. 
The Bible has a different view of sin. Sin is a hateful and rebellious act against a person, and that is God. You see, oftentimes we think of something like the Ten Commandments, for example, and we'd say, oh, someone just broke a list of words on a piece of paper. And so all they've done is violated an impersonal list. But we're viewing it wrong because we've not just violated some type of impersonal list. We've actually violated a person. Let me, maybe I can illustrate it this way to use something I've already mentioned a little bit. We can continue on the same line of thinking. If I have an affair against my wife, have I simply broken a marriage covenant of words or have I wronged a person? I could think of it one way that all I've done is it's, the only thing I've done is violated some words that were written on a paper when I made my marriage covenant that I would love her until death do us part and be faithful to her. That was the, I don't know what the covenant uh, that, that was a part of your ceremony, but ours was that, that I would be faithful unto her and have her only as my wife. And for none others, I forsake all others only for her. That was the covenant I made. And now if I, vi- I could say, well, it's just a few words, just a list. Just a piece of paper. That's what I did. Or I could see it as it is in reality that there's a person here, there's a woman here that I made a covenant with, a commitment to, and that I've wronged her. That's what the Bible wants us to see about sin, that there is a person, there is God that's made us and that we've transgressed. What happened? Do you know what happened right after Adam and Eve sinned against God when they ate the forbidden fruit? The Bible says that they started to hide. They went running. They tried to hide from God. They tried to cover themselves from His presence. And you know what I find amazing about Genesis 3? Hang with me, we're almost done. Adam and Eve didn't go looking for God. God went looking for Adam and Eve. God was not the one in the wrong. And Adam and Eve were hiding and covering They hear God's voice, and they're hiding themselves. And God's saying, where are you, Adam? God knew where Adam was, but he's asking Adam, where are you? Where are you? I'm afraid. We hid ourselves because we're naked. Who told you you're naked? Have you taken of the fruit? What have you done? That sounds like the heart of a heartbroken God, and that's exactly what it was. God going after Adam, God going after Eve. When God confronted him, they were ashamed. But then they went from being ashamed to playing the blame game. Well, that woman you gave me, well, that serpent, well, that blaming and blaming and blaming. Sound familiar? That's what I've done many, 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 many times. Rather than saying, Lord, Lord, it was me. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. No, it was her. No, it was him. No, it was that. And God said, no, no. It was you. So they learned the horrible consequences of sin that day, that God's a righteous God, but they also learned that God's a merciful God full of grace, that God went looking for them not only to confront their sin, but God went looking for them to cover their sin. He went looking for them, not just to confront their sin. Because if God wanted to punish them eternally without any hope of grace, He would have done so immediately. But that's not what He did. He confronted their sin, but then He said, I want to cover your sin. 
And they had sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And that's a picture of good works and trying to be moral and trying to be religious. And God said, that's not enough to cover your guilt. So he cast that aside and said that he made them coats of skin and he clothed them. And that is a picture of Christ and how he covers us with his grace and his righteousness when we come and when we believe on his name. You know, I, for a long time, I ran from God. And I'm sure in a group this size today, there's some others who've been running from God. Perhaps you have tried to avoid going to church. Maybe you try to avoid reading your Bible because you're afraid. You don't want to admit it. I didn't want to admit it for a while, but I was running from God. I didn't want to hear God's voice. I didn't want to read this book. I didn't want to be confronted. But God was speaking to me. I believe God is speaking to you. I felt ashamed of my sin. Perhaps you feel the same way. I tried to cover my sin. Maybe you've done the same. Maybe you try to do it like I did. I tried to put on a religious persona. I tried to make everyone else think I was something I'm not. Maybe you've done that. God's calling me and God is calling you. Some may be playing the blame game. Maybe not convinced they really are guilty. But God is seeking you. What does He want? What does God want? God wants you and I to get honest about who we really are and what we've done. And when we get honest with God and come clean, that's when God says, I want to cover you and clothe you in my mercy and grace, but not until, not until you're ready to come clean. How do we respond to a message like this when we're running and hiding from God? Let me give you these. Stop running. Confess our sinfulness to Him. Repent is a word that means to turn away from our sin and then let Him cover our shame and our guilt. God's calling out. What is your answer to God? Will you stand with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Let's stand together. In just a moment, we're going to be dismissed. But I want to ask you a question to consider there at your seat. What is your relationship like to God right now, the God that made you, the God that created you? Are you in a right relationship with Him because you've stopped running, because you've acknowledged and confessed your guilt to Him, that you've turned and repented from that and you've let Him cover and clothe you? Friend, that's the only way to be reconciled back to God. And perhaps God is calling out to you like He was to Adam and Eve. He knows where you are, but He's asking you, where are you? Maybe you're trying to drown out His voice and do all you can to hide from His voice. But He's seeking you. He's calling out to you. You say, but I'm afraid. Adam was afraid. I was afraid. But God is calling because He not only wants to confront us about our sin, He wants to cover us. And He would do that for you. If you committed your life to Jesus Christ today or made a spiritual decision, we'd like to know about it. Please contact us online at www.livinghopechicago.com. We hope you will join us next time for another encouraging message from God's Word.